Well, open your Bibles briefly to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. And I say briefly because this is going to be a launching point for us as we take a deeper dive into the first word of the epistle to the Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. The letter begins the way you and I typically end a letter with a signature. And here's the signature. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. As we said a few weeks ago, before we can get into understanding the letter, we need to understand the author. And the author is the Apostle Paul, who penned so much of the New Testament. But his interaction with the Ephesian church and with Ephesus in general is so important that we've pulled the car over for a couple weeks to understand Paul, and specifically today, Paul and the city of Ephesus, Paul at Ephesus. Now turn back to Acts chapter 19, and by God's providence, I trust we're going to be able to cover Acts 19 and 20 this morning, and I have two places that I can stop if I have to and we don't finish, but Lord willing, we can get through this all. I don't want to spend six weeks on Paul. That would be a a reputation that the staff would never let me live down. Just to show you where we're going, in Acts chapter 20, verse 24, is really Paul's personal manifesto. He says, in reference to his ministry at Ephesus and his forward-looking ministry in the rest of the New Testament, Acts 20, 24, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. So as we begin our study of Ephesians, we need to look at who Paul is who wrote such amazing words. This may be a reminder for some of you and a lot of you, and it could be an introduction to others to understand the ministry and life of Paul, especially in the city of Ephesus. Now, in our last study, we looked at his conversion from murderous terrorists against Christians to leading theologian in the church, leading missionary, leading evangelist, leading thinker about the Lord Jesus Christ. For our time today, we're going to examine his time in and around the city of Ephesus. Two of the most neglected features of biblical interpretation and study are chronology and geography. If you've ever been to Israel, and I would strongly recommend you consider a trip to Israel, you understand very quickly how chronology, what happens in what order, and geography, where these events took place, plays a significant role in not only understanding but in interpreting and applying God's word. So looking a little bit at the geography and looking also at the chronology of Paul in Ephesus is important today. As we set up our study of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, Understanding the features behind this letter are important, especially as relates to chronology and geography. And frankly, these are not always easy to grasp. Look at any five uh, 
uh, charts on Paul's life and ministry, and you're going to find some discrepancies because you have to make some judgment calls on what he did when between the white spaces where the Holy Spirit decided just to let us jump from one city to another and fill in the gaps from some of the other epistles. Paul's most lengthy interaction, think about this, with any city except for Jerusalem where he ministered and from which he was converted was at Ephesus. It was on his third missionary journey. Robert Raymond says this, Paul's missionary journey, regarding Paul's missionary journey rather, the biblical material relating to the Ephesian period of Paul's ministry confronts the student of scripture with some of the most baffling historical, textual, and interpretive problems of the New Testament. Thank you, Dr. Raymond. Paul first visited Ephesus in, back in chapter 18, briefly, verses 18 to 22, at the end of his second missionary journey. And now we pick him up on his third missionary journey. He and a man named Apollos, who he met at Ephesus from Alexandria, back in eight, chapter 18, verse 24 and 28. He also meets 12 disciples who only knew of the baptism of John. We'll see that in a minute. As was his custom... And this is one of the sad and almost humorous parts of Paul's ministry. We'll see in Ephesians, our study of Ephesians, that he was called to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And yet, even knowing that, in every city he goes to, where does he go first? The synagogue. And Romans 10 tells us he never could let go of his passion to see the, the Jewish covenant people of God come to faith in Christ We don't have any record of it going well for him in any of those synagogues. But the Gentiles were open to the gospel. Paul's letter to the Ephesians will deal with the collision, the social collision, the relational collision, the religious uh, collision, the dietal collision between saved Jews and saved Gentiles. And one of the major points of his whole letter is that these two diverse groups must come together in unity under Christ and show the world what true unity is. He understands and communicates that the most mundane, extreme reasons for divisions in the church should be resolved in a common allegiance to Christ. Now, let me give you a little bit of of, uh, uh, help here. If you want to turn to the back of your Bibles, you no doubt have a map that covers Paul's missionary journeys. Now, I know we skip the the book of maps a lot. (laughs) It's not technically a book of the Bible. It's super important, and praise God that most of your Bibles have that. So let me just give you a little bit of of altitude. Even if you can't see all of the details of this map, Paul just some for, for, the, uh, some, for some geography. Down here in the bottom, can you guys see that okay? This is Jerusalem right here. Paul is not leaving on his third missionary journey from Jerusalem. He's gonna end his third missionary there. You'll see that line coming here. This is his third missionary journey. He begins up here at Antioch. Antioch becomes the center of Christianity because of the persecution from the Jews in Jerusalem, all of the centrality and centrifugal force of Christianity begins to be launched from Antioch. Many churches call themselves Antioch Church, Antioch Baptist Church, and there's a reason for that because it was the first domino of Christian missionary uh, um, uh, ministry. So he starts in Antioch and he goes up through Galatia. You can see where Galatia is right here, Cappadocia. 
Derby and Lystra, remember at Derby and Lystra, Lystra specifically, he's beaten so bad they take him out and leave him in a ditch thinking he's dead. So he moves up this way, comes across Asia Minor, this is modern day Turkey, and comes across Hierapolis, Colossae, this is uh, uh, the area where he would have written the Colossians, uh, Laodicea is right here, and comes over to Ephesus. Ephesus is a seaport. I hope you can see that right there. Ephesus was the capital of the ancient empire, the Ottomans, the Turks, the uh, uh, um, Asia Minor. Very, very strategic and important city. It was the Rome of Asia Minor significant city and Paul ends up coming through there so let's go by here and see with Paul in Acts 19 a little bit of his ministry there okay Acts chapter 19 it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth by the way just for some perspective Corinth is over here on the isthmus between mainland Greece and Sparta or the Peloponnesus and uh, that's going to play a significant role in Paul's ministry, obviously, as he journeys forward. That Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. Now, that word disciples just means learners of the way. He said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, no, we've never even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. By the way, there are so many questions that you're going to ask about these two chapters. We are just going to do a high-altitude flyover and not get tripped up on some of the things that we will, Lord willing, be able to come back and study later. He said to them, into what were you baptized? Remember, baptism was not just the act of going underwater, and it was the act of identifying yourself with a movement. Into what then were you baptized? And they said, into, this is important, John's baptism. What a ministry of John the Baptist. It had gone all the way up through Asia Minor, all the way over to the port city of Ephesus. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him. And here's the big reveal, that is in Jesus Remember, John the Baptist openly confessed that his baptism, his identification with the movement of God, was incomplete. He insisted that those whom he baptized should believe in the one who would come after him, and that's exactly what he says in Matthew chapter 3, verse 11. So these were disciples of John, not yet Christians, not yet of Jesus. When they heard this, there's a lot between verses 4 and 5. They were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul obviously instructed them, told them the gospel, explained to them what John the Baptist's repentance meant, getting them ready for the atoning sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. Just like in Acts 2, they began speaking with foreign languages, tongues, and prophesying. And there were about 12 men in all. Here's these 12 guys. The beginnings of a church. Just like in Acts 2, these men spoke in tongues, foreign languages, as immediate proof that the gospel was true. How would they know that this Jesus is real? Just as they did in chapter 2, there was a supernatural signal or sign. Verse 8. Then, look at this, he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months. 
reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. This was Paul's habit and protocol in each city, even though, as Ephesians will instruct us, he's an apostle to the Gentiles. He starts with the Jews. Verse 9, but when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, there's the response of his Jewish friends. Speaking evil of the way, that was the early designation for Christianity, the way, before the people, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. Now we find a significant shift. Paul's pulpit was no longer in the synagogue. His lectern was now in a teaching hall. Can you imagine going to that school? This took place for two years so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Some of the Jews started leaking back over to the lecture hall to hear Paul talk about the Jewish Messiah, the Lord Jesus, who paid for sin with his own death. Wow, can you imagine attending that school? One of the accents of Paul in the book of Ephesians, by the way, is the emphasis on the spiritual dimension. We'll see as we study Ephesians, he'll instruct us about the heavenlies, about the prince of the power of the air, about the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. He'll conclude in Ephesians 6, 12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, powers, world forces of this darkness, spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Where does that background come from? Now it starts to get really, really interesting. That's the background. We're about to find the background for which Paul would address this supernatural struggle of the believer. Verse 11. God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. How how extraordinary? So that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the spirit evil spirits went out this is just further proof that he had divine apostolic authority but also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus saying I adjure you by Jesus and Paul whom uh, whom Jesus whom Paul preaches rather They saw what Paul was doing, casting out spirits, healing people in the name of Jesus, and they co-opted it. We're gonna get that name and go leverage our own. Whatever he's doing is powerful. We want that power to be on our ministry. Seven sons of Sceva, verse 14, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this, co-opting the name of Jesus. And the evil spirit (laughs) answered and said to them, "Um, I recognize Jesus, I know about Paul, but who are you? (laughs) They weren't believers. They had no relationship. Two words are used here, gnosko and epistemi. It demonstrates that they truly knew Jesus. They knew about Paul and his ministry with Jesus. They didn't even know who these guys were. And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, subdued all of them and overpowered them, So they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Absolute defeat. This became known to all, both Jews and Greeks who lived in Ephesus. And fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. 
Many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing, and disclosing their practices. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. They knew they were a farce. And they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver, multiple years' salary. Verse 20, so the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Now after these things were finished, Paul purposed in the spirit to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. That's where he wants to end up. And having sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Now Luke describes the immense effects of the gospel in Ephesus in the most understated way. Verse 23. About that time, there, were, there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, uh-oh, this is going to get really, really violent. A silversmith who made silver shrines of Diana, Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, Men, you know that our prosperity depends on this business. What business? Well, just outside of the city of Ephesus was one of the seven wonders of the world. This is a depiction of it. It's in ruins now. And it was the temple of Artemis, the temple of Diana. Uh, it's, it was said to be the greatest of all seven wonders of the ancient world. It had 127 columns in two rows that surrounded it. 60 feet high were the columns, four feet in diameter. They were arranged in a double row on all four sides, eight or nine on the short sides, 20 or 21 on the long sides. And these columns were, on the columns were these facades of the Greek gods, scenes from Greek mythology. And this was just outside the city of Ephesus. This housed the great image, the great idol of Artemis, of Diana. She was a fertility god, and let me just say, without being graphic, she looked very fertile. She was the one to whom they looked. She was the one that they worshipped, and just, just like today, my wife and I were there a year and a half ago, and you can go to the little souvenir shop south side and buy little shrines of, of the um, goddess Diana, goddess Artemis. They were making these, and it was a tourist industry, exactly like it is today. People would take their own copy of Artemis, and take it home with them so they could worship. Well, people begin to be converted to Christianity and realize that that's all a farce. It's not real. And so they stopped buying the little idols. So Paul is wrecking the economy with the gospel. By the way, as beautiful as that great seventh wonder of the world is, this is a picture I took of it now. There's one lone column and everything else has been ravaged and is in ruins. And Christianity marches on. Verse 26. You see and hear that 
not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. There was his message. Not only this, there is danger that this trade of ours, now we find out this is not about worship, but about finance, is falling into disrepute. But also, and now they try to whitewash it with religiosity, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship will even be dethroned from her magnificence. When they heard this, they were filled with rage and began crying out saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And the city, the whole city of Ephesus, was filled with confusion And they rushed with one accord into the theater, dragging a couple of disciples, Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. So they grab these guys. It's a massive riot. And they take them to the Greek theater outside, just at the bottom of the hill in Ephesus. This Ephesian theater was the largest in the ancient world. It seated, get this, 24,000 people. And they filled it with these two men in the bottom, trying them as trades wreckers. Where was Paul's mind? His two friends just got drugged over there. They could be killed. Verse 30, Paul wanted to go into the assembly. (laughs) Let me at him. And the disciples held him back. They would not let him go. Also, some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and repeatedly urged him not to venture into the theater. This is a dangerous situation. So then, some were shouting one thing and some another for the assembly was in confusion and the majority did not know for what reason they had come together. Just like you're drug in after a junior high uh, fight into, who, so there's a fight and everybody kind of gathers around. You don't even know who it is or what it's about, but you go to watch. A lot of people were sitting in the theater thinking the same. Some of the crowd, verse 33, concluded it was Alexander since the Jews had put him forward. And having motioned with his hand, Alexander was intending to make a defense to the assembly. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, a single outcry arose from the law as he shouted for about two hours. 24,000 people in a riot for two hours. What were they yelling? Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. You have Jesus, we have Artemis. Look at our temple. After quieting the crowd, the town clerk said, he drops down into the bottom and he announces, the acoustics in this place are incredible. I was able to stand in the bottom of this. My wife was up here and I spoke with just higher than a, than a, than a normal voice and she could hear every word I said. Incredible acoustics. Town clerk drops down and he says, men of Ephesus, What man is there, after all, who does not know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of the image which fell down from heaven? We find out that they believe that this image in the temple, this idol was created in heaven and dropped there. 
So since these are undeniable facts, you ought to keep calm and do nothing. You know what he's saying? He's saying, if you put your money where your mouth is, if you really believe she's God, then this, this Paul and his Jesus is no threat. For you have brought these men here to neither, who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of our goddess. So then, if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with him have a complaint against any man, the courts are in session and proconsuls are available. Let them bring charges against one another. In other words, do this legally, not with a riot. But if you want anything beyond this, it shall be settled in law assembly. For indeed, here's the great threat. For indeed, we are in danger of being accused of a riot in connection with today's events. Since there is no real cause for it, and in this connection we will be unable to account for this disorderly gathering. After saying this, he dismissed the assembly. In God's providence, he has this city clerk come down and calm everybody down, preserve these men's lives, and likely Paul's, And there's calm. That's the Ephesian context. I just want to grab a couple of things to, to let you know about. Just, just from the, this chapter, I'm going to have two kind of outlines today. What do we learn from the Ephesian context? Just, just from glancing at this, because what we see in this glance is going to have bearing on what we hear in the letter of Ephesians. First of all, spiritual ignorance and misunderstanding were prevalent there. I mean, you can see that they didn't have a clue about their own religion. They couldn't defend it. They were insecure about it. You have these sons of Sceva. They were ignorant. They misunderstood the realities of the spiritual world, which leads to another contextual observation, cosmic conflict and confusion. What does that mean? There was a real spiritual battle going on there. And the real spiritual battle was between the spirit, the power of God, and the power of the devil. When a true believer, Paul, an apostle, came up against these powers, he won. However, when fakes tried, it didn't work. They didn't understand what was going on in the spirit world we also see social tension and evasion. You already saw in, in this, uh, uh, this uh, riot trial, if he's a Jew, then. So this, this conflict between Jews and Gentiles was real and was riotous. Remember that when we get to chapters 3 and 4 of Ephesians. And also, gospel-provoked oppression and persecution were mainstream. The gospel was provocative, but they did allow them in their pluralism to let him teach in a lecture hall for two years. So those are just kind of some contextual observations from the city and from the scene that we're going to bring into our study of Ephesians. Back to our map. Paul will leave Ephesians, Ephesians, Ephesus rather. He'll leave Ephesus and he'll go up through Asia, over through Macedonia, drop down in, through Greece and into Corinth. 
He's going to, giving you a, a Cliff Notes version, um, we'll see that his, his first desire will be to go straight to Syria and then drop down to Jerusalem. But instead, he's warned not to do that, and he goes right back almost the same route, except he jumps on a, uh, um, in Mytilene here, he jumps, jumps on a ship to try to get down to Jerusalem. And the reason he wants to get down to Jerusalem is because the people in Jerusalem, the Jews who'd been converted, were, were having a hard time. They were starving. They'd lost their jobs. They'd lost their families. They were disenfranchised from the Greeks. They were disenfranchised from the Romans. They were disenfranchised from the Jews. They literally were starving to death. And so he takes an offering from Corinth and from Macedonia, and he has this offering to go help them eat, and he wants to get here by Passover. With that, look at chapter 20. Now, I'm going to skip the first 12 verses. Really interesting account as he stops up here at Troas and he is preaching in Troas and it's a three-story house and this poor teenager named Eutychus is sitting on the, on the ledge. He preaches well into the night, almost an all-nighter and poor Eutychus gets tired, sleepy, falls out backwards and dies and Paul heals him, brings him back from the dead. Right after that, we come to verse 13. From Troas, Paul's going to go to Miletus. I'll show you that in a moment. But we, going ahead to the ship, set sail for Asos, intending from there to take Paul on board. We is Luke. We now know that Luke, the writer, is with Paul. For so he had arranged it, intending himself to go by land. And when he met it at Asos, we took him on board and came to Mytilene. Sailing from there, we arrived... The following day, opposite Chios, and the next day we crossed over to Samos, and the following day we came to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus. Why? So that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, by Pentecost. He jumps the ship, and he ends up, here's Ephesus, he ends up stopping at Miletus, which is right here, 30 miles from Ephesus. He didn't want to stop at Ephesus because he knew he loved those people and it would be a long time and he needs to get to Jerusalem for this, this uh, delivery of the offering by the Passover, by Pentecost. Well, there's a problem. He's gonna be there for a, year, uh, for a day or two and he sends for the Ephesian elders to travel this 30, de- 30 miles down to Miletus where he is there. Why, why doesn't he go see them? What if the ship leaves? <laughs> there were no schedules. So they come down. That's where we have it. Now, as we go through this encounter with the Ephesian elders, I just want to show you his relationship with them and very briefly to outline four dimensions of Paul's spiritual leadership. This is so sweet and so refreshing Paul sends to the elders and says, come see me because, as we'll find out, I'm never gonna see you again. The first, we find, is he left an authentic example in ministry. Remember, we're looking at Paul and Ephesus. You looked at the context in Ephesus, now we're looking back at Paul's ministry there. Authentic example in ministry, verse 17. From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. Paul's about to rehearse his Integrity, his example in his ministry to the Ephesian church. 
He's not defending his reputation, rather engraving indelibly on their memories the picture of his own tireless, tearful, truth-telling service as a pattern for their own ministries, the shepherds of God's flock. When they came to him, verse 18, he said to them, you yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. Remember we said he kept going to the synagogues and the Jews didn't receive him well? They kept trying to kill him. Wow, the humility. Paul spoke with unforgetting urgency because he was utterly focused on the eternal spiritual welfare of those he served against his own comfort against his own convenience so much so he wept Paul knew that God had sovereignly chosen elected people for his own glory we'll see that in verses 3 and 4 of Ephesians 1 yet that assurance never led Paul to be cold or indifferent. Rather, with tears, he begged people to believe, not to see if they were elect. Remember that in just a few weeks. Trials of the plots and Jews, they wanted him. Which leads us, secondly, to his selfless commitment to the gospel. Selfless, sacrificial commitment to the gospel. And now behold, bound in spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. Remember, remember what was going on in Jerusalem. Everybody was after him. The the Jews were after him. The Gentiles were after him and they'll save him and take him back to Rome because of his, his Roman citizenship. And the Christians were even suspicious of him. Except, now how about this for God's will for your life? Look at verse 23. The Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city saying, bonds and afflictions await me. How is that for God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? The Holy Spirit told him, everywhere you go, it's going to be difficult. Verse 24. What does he say in reference to that? the threat of his life, but in reference to that, I do not, verse 24, consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify, to preach solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. You know, This verse is a reset for us all. This is seeing the ultimate priority and value system operative in Paul's mind and heart. Bonds and jail and affliction and I'm gonna die for the gospel. But my my life, I I don't count dear to myself, but I do count as dear what I do with my life in reference to Jesus. Are you finishing your course? Do you know the gospel and tell people of it? Are you faithful? Is your life dear to yourself in reference to what God has put us on this planet to do? Are we clinging to this world? 
more than looking for eternity? Let me encourage you, verse 24, in your family, in your care group, spend some time doing some soul searching through that lens. Therefore, he says in verse 26, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. No one will go to hell because they were in my presence and did not hear the gospel. If they go to hell, it's because they have rejected what I've told them. How do we know that? Verse 27, for I did not shrink from declaring you the whole counsel, the whole purpose of God. What does that mean? Does that mean that Paul preached every book of the Old Testament? Maybe. Does it mean he preached every nuance of Christian theology? Probably. But I think what it means in general is he held nothing back. There was nothing sacred that he didn't say the gospel addresses. He didn't skip the portions of the Bible that were difficult. He never fashioned his message to appeal to anyone's taste or to avoid their prejudices. Bottom line, he presented God's revelation and dared not edit it or neglect it. He didn't discard it. He didn't dumb it down. He didn't avoid truths that were controversial. He didn't skip things that appeared less profitable. Paul preached the whole truth that God had revealed with Jesus Christ as the integrating centrality in the gospel. He summarized it in different ways. In verse 21, he says it's repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus. In verse 24, the gospel of the grace of God. In verse 25, the kingdom. In verse 32, the word of God's grace. Let me remind you that Paul did this with a comprehensive audience. According to verse 21, everyone he met Upstanding or down and out, the proud, the humble, all needed the grace offered in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Third dimension faithful warning about error. Faithful warning about error. Now he talks to these elders. Remember, think of this scene. They're in probably a rented room because none of them live there or a borrowed. Uh, space from a believer that he had found. Be on guard, men, he says, for yourselves and for all the flock. Among the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood as elders. We should take that very, very seriously here at Mission Road to shepherd the church of God. It was purchased by Christ's blood They're God's flock. The Holy Spirit has appointed overseers. But he says, be on guard for yourselves. Don't don't miss that. For yourselves. Why? Verse 29. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. This is hard to read, verse 30. And from among your own selves, the elders, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Do you see the the danger of spiritual leadership there? That you begin to want a crowd and affection and attention and focus instead on yourself rather than on 
Christ. He tells the Ephesian elders that the church was about to be attacked and the attack was not going to be so much from the outside as from the inside. And some of those very elders would become intoxicated with their own influence. They would twist truths of the gospel to attract followers to themselves rather than to the Savior. Therefore, he says, verse 21, be awake, heads up, be on the alert. Remembering that night and day for a period of three years, that's how long he was in Ephesus, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. In contrast to self-promoting, God-distancing leadership, real leadership is personal, it's tearful, it's careful. Even though the church at Ephesus was healthy at this time, Paul's warning was proven 35 years later when the risen Lord wrote to this church and said, you have forsaken your first love. These were the men he was writing to. They forsook their first love because of their love for themselves. A little footnote, one of the things that I treasure about serving with the elders here at Mission Road is I have not seen, now you pray for us that we don't become this, I have yet to see a man who sits on our board as a self-promoter. And by God's grace, may he save us, any of us, from wanting to advance our name at the expense of Christ's. Please pray for us. And then fourthly, fourth dimension of spiritual leadership, confident trust in God. We say this so often, but think of it very intensely for a moment. Confident trust in God. After saying that, you're gonna have a disaster come from your own board. Jesus is going to end up writing a letter to say you've left your first love here in Ephesus. And now, he says still, verse 32, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I commend you to God. I trust him with you and you with him. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. I wasn't in this for money and neither should you. You yourself know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. He was a tent maker. In everything, I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Don't be lovers of money, which is an elder qualification as well. This summarizes Paul's philosophy on life, his ministry, is to be one of giving, not getting. Paul gave himself to the ministry and to the word. He gave himself with such intensity that he ended up forgetting himself. And verse 36. The horn on the ship must have been blown. It's time to go. When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. These are men who he had spent three years ministering with. And they began to weep aloud, literally to wail, and embraced Paul, repeatedly kissed him, 
grieving especially over the word which he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And they were walking with him, accompanying him to the ship. It's not a hard scene to imagine. They're in this room praying and talking. They kneel to pray. The ship is leaving. I'm sure every man was weeping. And even though Luke gives us such remarkable detail in capturing all the events of this chapter, whatever those words that they shared at the end were so intimate that Luke left them out. When the apostle, friend, and shepherd said amen, the spiritual leaders of Ephesus sobbed unashamedly and uncontrollably. They hugged him. They kissed him differently than they ever had before because this time would be the last time they would see him. Paul would end up in Jerusalem He would be tried there. They were going to try to kill him, the Jews were. He appealed to Caesar since he was a Roman citizen. They took him back up to Caesarea by the sea. And he stayed there two years. Then he would ultimately travel along the islands to have a shipwreck and end up over in Rome. He would be in jail there for a couple years under house arrest and in that jail he would write the letter to the Ephesians that we have called Ephesians. He would be released. Some speculation whether he would go to Spain or not. There's a lot of of speculation about what happened in those, those two years and then he was brought back to Rome, arrested, put in a Mamertine prison and executed, beheaded because of his faith. So when you open Ephesians 1 and you see the word Paul, don't be quick. There's a lot in that word. And we'll see just a little more about that and Ephesus even next week. Geography, chronology, really important. 